0: You say validity. Validity is a dogmatic word. It assumes that there is a a scripture or a code or a a one right truth or one white ray of understanding enlightenment. And I think that, you know, similar to my response that like meditation is not being in the present. I think that although it is being in the present, it's just such a bad answer. It's a dogmatic sort of trite answer. I think that the trite way of thinking about enlightenment is the enlightened one is the person who returns to the present. Um, I think like the better way of thinking about enlightenment is the enlightened one is the fully expressed bodhisattva. And I think that that choice is basically a choice. If you're red, be red. If you're blue, be blue. If you're green, be green. But if you're red, don't try to also be blue, green, pink, orange, purple. You have to be red.
1: My name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom where I interview creative people, founders, artists, and engineers about their meditation, mindfulness, and yoga practices, and how those practices help them to tap into creative flow. Today I interviewed Francis Pedrasa, the founder of Invisible Technologies. Francis clearly thinks differently than most about mindfulness, and he has self-described heretical views on meditation. If you have strong beliefs about what meditation is and isn't, then this episode might be triggering for you. You have been warned. If you like this podcast, please search for Crazy Wisdom on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. As always, I really hope you enjoy this content. May you have a wonderful and beautiful day. Thank you for for taking the time to to talk with me today. Um, And uh, we'll just get right into it. Uh, Do you have a daily meditation practice?
0: Yes, I'm always meditating. I'm meditating right now. And so what does is, what is meditation look to like to you? The response being in the present is a bad response because it doesn't show an understanding of what the present is. Um, uh, the future emerges from the present. Um, uh, to understand the past is to understand why the present is the way it is. Um, so even if you're doing something that you would consider profoundly unmeditative, like planning, um, or like um, abstract reasoning, thinking. Um, meditation is not anti-thinking. Um, the, the state of meditation that I think uh, should be aspired to is uh, a state of being connected to um, source or flow. Um, when you realize that you're you're part of everything else and you're connected to this vast storyline that we call reality, then you you are you are meditating and you're ask you start you start asking yourself, um, how can I how can I play my part in this cosmic dance? And that's, that's a meditation, meditative state of mind. Um, so uh, I'm always thinking about how to fully express myself, how to fully express my role in the, in the cosmos. And, um, and that's a very different uh, conception of meditation. And
1: so it's essentially that what that sounds like to me is it brings in this uh, nonlinear aspect of reality as opposed to this linear thinking that we get into a lot of times about like this follows, this follows, this follows, this. Follows this it's coming back to this. Oh, like it's right now, right. It's going on right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I used to meditate for eight hours a day. Um, there was a time after Everest failed, I went traveling. I did the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And so I was walking all day long. Um, and, um, I would either be listening to Alan Watts or I would be meditating on headspace, uh, or, uh, and, and then I ended up doing an art class in Florence and, um, kept doing headspace and, and and then I went to Thailand and by, by the time I was in Thailand I was like just I'd gone from a, a cup like uh, 10 minutes a day to 20 to 30 to an hour to two hours three hours you know, there were some days when I literally just meditated all day long and um, it was an important shift for me to go through that experience um, and then at some point I realized that uh, either this had permanently uh, shifted me, and I, I could take the take the the mindset um, uh, and apply that, uh, you know, in a day-to-day way, uh, or I just wasn't going to live my life. And and I think actually the most alarming experience to me of all was the experience of spending time in Buddhist monasteries in Thailand. Um, I think if you want to see, uh, if you want to understand a religion, um, you should basically spend time in their in their holy places, and then do the opposite. <laughs> um, I uh, um, I think that um, uh, Christians are profoundly unChristian, Buddhists are profoundly unBuddhist. Uh, in my in my actual you know in my actual observation, um, so uh, you know these monks are sitting there spending all day long meditating, and um, and the uh, the question in Buddhism who is the Bodhisattva? Um, the Bodhisattva is this character um, that is the um, the one who has achieved enlightenment and then comes back to, to live life and engage in the world and fulfill their purpose and so the Bodhisattva is like the Buddhist Messiah and I think the first movement of Buddhism is realizing. The corruption of self and the corruption of the world, uh, and then seeking enlightenment. And then the second movement of Buddhism is realizing that uh, everything is one, uh, and that reality is an illusion, and that by meditating we can access um, the unity behind all duality and um, achieve that oneness within and ourselves and ourselves. And, and 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 so you meditate, but meditation is a kind of living death. People who meditate are zombies. The act of meditation is to become a zombie. You are you are you are you are basically like sleeping. You you are you are in a in an expression of, of a you're in a death posture. And the reason why it's important to die every day, the reason it's important to become a zombie every day, the reason why it's important to meditate is um uh we're all going to die. And when we're dead, uh, you leave behind your body and your concerns. And so Um, it's not so different than the Stoic practice of meditation, which is to to meditate on uh, impermanence and death. It's very consistent with Buddhism. But if 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 Buddhism ends there, which is what I call halfway Buddhism, which is what it is for most people, what meditation is for most people, you have a pathetic religion. The beauty of Buddhism is that it doesn't end there, and you go on to come down from the mountaintop to leave the monastery, having gained something and the question is how are you different and better now and are you more engaged in the world and um and okay. i like to think of i like to think of, as, as an example i i'd put forward that um trump is a bodhisattva that Genghis Khan is a bodhisattva um, that even people you you think you think are are horrible historical figures um are Perhaps more enlightened than you and um, and although you might have you might disagree with them today or although you might have fought or opposed them in the past, although you might think that there's a better way or more enlightened figure like you know the typical ones are Gandhi, jesus Buddha Martin Luther King um, and those are and I think those they were also enlightened also Bodhisattvas um, but uh, I think the the important thing is to realize that um, uh, they they expressed themselves fully uh, and took a position and had the courage to be wrong, and um, and so in, there's a reason why Zen Buddhism exists. So Zen Zen is the combination of Buddhism and Taoism. Taoism being the the religion, ancient religion of China, Lao Tzu 150 BC writing the Tao Te Ching um, and uh, Huang the Chuang Tzu after him, uh, continuing on the work, and, and, and it's a truly great religion that communism destroyed in the 20th century, including the destruction of temples, um, which is like a an irreversible tragedy um, akin to like the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Um, it's one of the great, great um, sadnesses of history. <laughs> I don't really get emotional about many things, but um, uh, I think that the the death of the 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 death of Taoism on the, by by, um, by the communists, like the the, uh, the killing of a religion, is is, is is like one of the one of wait let me let me finish the train of thought. Like, is one of the um uh under underappreciated tragedies in history. And and Taoism teaches the, the yin yang, right? So um, uh, you can't have good without evil. You can't have left without right. You can't have high without low. Uh, you exactly. can't have pain without ple- you can't have pleasure without pain. Um, uh, and uh, and so you see, like the typical yoga mom uh, go get her like yin yang tattoo. <laughs> um, and uh, I I just don't think we 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 really recognize how radical the yin yang is as a way of thinking. And and the reason why it's so consistent with Buddhism, and the reason why these these religions. Uh, got married basically like Taoism and Buddhism got married and became Zen Buddhism in Japan. And that happened totally organically. Um, the reason why it was such a natural union is that they both have this essential teaching around, um, duality and, and unity. Um, uh, male, female, one, you know, uh, good, evil, one, um, uh, existence, non-existence, one, you know, it's all reality. It's all one, it's all present, past, future, past, present, future, one. Um, And, uh, and the, um, the reason why, uh, uh, even these, you might say that even these horrible historical figures, like, uh, um, uh, you know, you might say Alexander the Great was a horrible historical figure because he conquered so many, so many, uh, nations and killed so many people. Um, uh, but, uh, he probably was more enlightened than the average American. Um, the average American, like, isn't doing anything wrong. <laughs> they're just, they're barely existing. Yeah,
1: so I would say that that enlightenment itself, this idea, the concept of enlightenment has nothing to do with the actual state of enlightenment, which it is, it is which is essentially this coming back to the moment over and over and over again. Um, so to compare enlightenments, I don't know, I guess you could do that, but I don't know, I don't know the validity of it because in each person's dharma, in each person's individual dharma, Um, in each person's, I don't know, way of being, there is their own kind of enlightenment. And it isn't this conceptual thing of like, oh, this person is enlightened. It's in that moment of like coming back, oh, what is going on right now?
0: Retouching reality. What is validity though? Uh, You say validity. Validity is a dogmatic word. It assumes that there is a a scripture or a code or a a one right truth or one white ray of understanding enlightenment. And I think that, you know, similar to my response that like meditation is not being in the present. I think that although it is being in the present, it's just such a bad answer. It's a dogmatic sort of trite answer. I think that the trite way of thinking about enlightenment is the enlightened one is the person who returns to the present. Um, I think like the better way of thinking about enlightenment is the enlightened one is the fully expressed bodhisattva. And I think that that choice is basically a choice. If you're red, be red. If you're blue, be blue. If you're green, be green. But if you're red, don't try to also be blue, green, pink, orange, purple. You have to be red. And, and the reason why the Bodhisattva knows that is that they've gone to the mountain. They've meditated. They've become a zombie. They've fully died. They've realized that everything is all one and all the colors blended to black. And all of existence, you know, sort of becomes nothing. And, okay, guess what? I'm alive. So the really glorious thing about this dance of existence is to, is to be, become what reality wants me to become, which is red. And so uh, red is in opposition to blue, green, orange, purple. But beyond that opposition, there's that unity that, like, um, you know, beyond all things. Um, so I don't think in a way, and this is why I think Trump is a bodhisattva, it's like the person who's polarizing and triggering everyone else, uh, is fully expressing one mode of reality, one mode of being, and challenging everyone else to fully express their color. Um, and, and that's why I just can't stand normal people. And I love villains and heroes, um, because the villains and the heroes are at least participating in the drama.
1: So you believe it's necessary to participate in the drama in order to
0: get in touch with reality or in order to express your own reality? I know. I think it's necessary to leave the drama. Again, three acts of Buddhism. Act one, recognize the corruption of the drama, recognize the tragedy of the drama, recognize this pain and the suffering of the drama, seek enlightenment, seek a way of understanding what reality is. Movement two, go to the mountain, recognize that beyond the drama, there is like oneness. Um, And, uh, and that, uh, and by the way, further comment on part two is the crisis of nihilism, which, as a civilization, we have not really processed. And as we go further and further, further into Buddhism, Buddhism be the religion, being the religion that independence in the West, um, uh, we we're playing with something very dangerous, and I think something that we should be playing with. I'm, I'm, I consider myself a Taoist, um, but. I think this is a dangerous religion um and um uh so so more on that later but but yes part three is coming back into the drama and incarnating your role in the drama and by choosing to be one thing you're choosing not to be everything else and uh and that that is that is a that is a knowingness that like um you know bodhisattva has like uh that um that somebody else doesn't and, and this is why it's really you know you have these fascinating characters in Buddhist stories like the um, um that are like for example, in Zen uh, they have this they slap each other um, and hit each other so they say they say like um uh, uh, was Hitler good or evil? Say good, I hit you 30 times. Say evil, I hit you 30 times. Say both, I hit you 60 times. And then the re- pr- proper response is something that demonstrates your enlightenment. And so one example of a proper Zen response is the shout of like, just, ah! Or katsu! You know, they, they just shout. Um, and, uh, and that shout is like a way of saying beyond words. Like, the, the truth is beyond words. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but there are, but by the way, this, yeah, the word tools cool. are so slippery that, that, that even that is sometimes not the proper response. Because once a student learns that, they'll just shout in response to all questions. But the, the teachers, like, sometimes don't even allow that response. Um, they, have to, <laughs> they have to show something that is even beyond that. And they have to not think about the answer. Like, if you, if you, if you think about the answer too long, Got the wrong answer. I'm really
1: interested in this, 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 um, this, second to third stage you mentioned of essentially coming back from the mountain, coming back into society, expressing your own dharma, expressing your own truth, expressing your reality. Um, and and I want to go into actually how it looked like for you. What was that experience of going meditating for eight hours a day, going spending time in, in a Buddhist temple, and then returning to uh, the U.S. the culture that you grew, you grew up in. Uh, and then returning to building a company? Um, what did that look like yeah. for you Did you experience that?
0: Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, so, uh, yes, I've gone through these three movements myself. Um, and, um, and so the first, the, the thing that precipitated this was the failure of my first company. Um, but it also happened to coincide with the failure of my first ideology you might say um so um i'll tell you a little bit about my story um you might remember this from our conversation a couple years ago but um just for context uh i grew up in san diego uh which is a very strange place to grow up it's uh so nice that it, it's actually horrible how nice it is um it's i call it purgatory um and uh my, the great blessing of my youth is and the thing that i'm most fortunate and grateful for is uh, is I had a five-year course uh, in the great books of Western civilization taught by these two wonderful teachers, and um, and the first year we read the great books of uh, ancient Greece, um, and uh, this is, you know, spanning literature, philosophy, history, so everything from Herodotus to uh, Homer to, you know, Plato to um, Aeschylus or Sophocles, um, and then the following year, uh, the Romans, um, and uh, so you're reading Virgil and Dante, etc. Uh, next year is the Scholastics. You're reading uh, Thomas Aquinas and um, uh, and Anselm of Canterbury and uh, the, these guys. And then the next year you're reading um, the Renaissance and uh, um, Reformation and Enlightenment. Um, Renaissance, Reformation. The final year is the Enlightenment. Um, and uh, and then I. I, so I feel like I had a better education in high school than I did in college. In college, I went to this, you know, uh, horrible university that um, uh, claims to be a great university called Cornell. Cornell. Cornell University is an Ivy League school in upstate New York, and it's like in a godforsaken ice tundra. And it's, um, and, uh, you know, the typical way that classes are taught, you go and there's like a big lecture hall of like 100 people, and there's PowerPoint slides, and then afterwards you regurgitate the answers to the slides on a test. Um, so, uh, I started reading books in the library and kept my original high school education going and uh, realized, you know, this sort of Mark Twain quote like, never let schooling get in the way of your education. Um, I, um, after graduating college, I started my first company. And um, the company, Everest, was an iPhone app to help people achieve personal goals. And I thought that technology could help people achieve enlightenment. I thought that technology could, um, you know, help people write down all their goals, help them complete steps to, to achieve those goals, uh, tell their story, get encouragement from other people, uh, encourage other people doing similar goals, um, and that you could build a whole ecosystem around humans like, achieving goals. And the idea being that, like, humans that achieve goals uh, are, like, the best humans. And then I think, sort of think that the uh, – the model for me was was Da Vinci at that time. Like, uh, you know, how do you get if humans have that much potential inside of them, you know, Da Vinci like potential? Uh, even if we all have different forms of genius, like, how do we express that genius, and how can technology provide tools? Um, and um, and in a way, you know, a very, a way Everest was an education company. It's just sort of a different kind, you know, providing people tools instead of teaching materials. But but still, you know, the idea was enlightenment, and I think. Enlightenment is sort of the great aim of education, um, uh, both in its... Pra- By the way, I think enlightenment ought to be practical, not just uh, spiritual. Um, intellectually, I believed in truth at the time. Um, I believed there, there was... And I also believed in good good versus evil. I, I believed that there was such a thing as a final truth, um, uh, like, a fi- like a, it was possible to know um, that, that questions had answers. It was possible to know, uh, uh, to, to to develop a sort of unified theory of everything, um, and um, that uh, that even if uh, neither myself nor anyone else would achieve it in our lifetime, that like someday humanity might achieve sort of like uh, a grasp of objective reality, um, and uh, and that even if humanity couldn't achieve it, at least such a thing existed in the mind of. God, let's say, a concept. And uh, I was wrestling with my belief, literal belief in God, but but still the, the, the overall sense of my journey was a sense of seeking truth. I was seeking truth. Um, and so I would read a book, say a book about economics, and I'd say, what is the truth about the economy? And I would gain so much truth from reading the book, I would be like, wow, I'm enlightened. But then I would start asking questions like a month or two later about, like, huh, well, what about this? What about that? And I'd realize that the book was not a complete truth. And then I would go read another book, and then I would achieve certain alignment. Like, okay, now I understand it. Now I get it. Uh, now I understand the economy. And then, of course, the same thing happened a few months later. I'd realize, oh, shoot, well, I don't actually fully understand it. Once this happens enough times, you realize, oh my God, the territory is vast, There's there's tons of contradictions, it's not easy. Uh, to reconcile them, um, and uh, even though most people are just plainly wrong and uneducated, uh, so you you feel like you have the answers compared to them. In reality, even you don't have the answers, um, and uh, and and you just are less wrong than everyone else. There's and, no
1: uh, brain. There's no way that your evolved brain will ever
0: encompass reality inside of itself. There's
1: no way that any individual will ever be able to truly grasp reality at an
0: intellectual right. level. Right. So going back to the Buddhism story, so this is my own Buddhist journey. Uh, I, I tried to incarnate or incorporate my truth in the form of a product, in the form of a company with Everest. And, um, and my truth failed. And it failed for practical and spiritual reasons. Um, so the practical reasons uh, are things like, for example, our business model we didn't charge money for it. Um, the reason why we didn't charge money for it is we wanted to build a free social network that would be as big as Facebook because we thought everyone has goals and everyone would want to build, be a part of a network and a community that achieves goals. Um, but uh, that was tied to, so that, that, that practical mistake uh, and, 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 and blind spot in my understanding was tied to a spiritual blind spot in my understanding around human nature itself, which is the idea that like, so Nike doesn't make money when people run. Nike makes money when people want to run. They buy shoes. And Amazon doesn't make money when people read books. Amazon makes money when people want to read books, and they buy them. And gyms don't make money when people get fit. Gyms make money when people want to get fit, and they get their gym membership. And if this wasn't the case, if they didn't divorce monetization from retention, if they didn't short human nature, if they didn't basically bet against humans being... Um, disciplined, goal-achieving creatures—they uh, wow. would actually have bad businesses, um, and and so my inability to understand that spiritual truth about human nature resulted in this practical um, mistake really, and error.
1: I'm really interested in where and, you're going, but I, I want to ask because it seems like yeah. you're part of part of human nature. So some people have that in them. But then there's another part of the population, for example, yourself, who are able to achieve goals and who are able to do things what do you
0: mm-hmm.
1: How do you kind of reconcile that that difference
0: yeah, so you're right so so everest was a multi layered learning experience for me um, there There were many levels of mistakes that i mistake that I made so on a deeper level, I realized that goals themselves are a flawed construct so i, I uh, ontologically uh like on a, a I'm using big words here, and I'm use more big words. Like, a priori, like, uh, just on its face, bef- before even really knowing anything about, about what the goal is, like, goals don't, uh, are, are a really bad way uh, of framing um, anything. Because, um, so say, say my goal is to, um, uh, to get fit. Well, first of all, there's the definitional question of, like, what does get fit actually mean? Um, which is, is hard, hard to define. Um, uh, and then there's the, all the questions around like, well, is it really your goal to get fit? Because right now, my goal is to be on this phone call with you. Um, and uh, if my goal right now is to get fit, um, like I should hang up the call and go to the nearest gym and get fit. Um, and so the reality is we have many, 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 many competing goals, um, which are at various levels of definition. Some of these goals are incredibly broken down, uh, and incredibly clear. Um, and some of these are very, very vague. Um, some of these are very high priority. Some of these are very low priority. Uh, and then you have the further problems of like, um, proximity. Some of these are urgent. Some of these are not urgent. Um, some of these are important. Some of these are not important. Um, and, and then, and then you have the, the problem that if you go invest a huge amount of energy and time breaking down your goals fully, um, you, you're actually doing something stupid, um, not smart. Because um, the chances—the chance that your priorities will change and you're not going to want the goal anymore, um, or that that, or that in, in breaking down the goal, you realize that that's actually the wrong goal—is very high. Um, so, so basically, you know, the whole exercise of the company was trying to impose a rigid structure on top of reality that didn't match reality itself. Um, and uh, so anyways, I, I don't want to go, I don't want to spend too much time talking about my, my first company, but I, I want to stay focused on the real reason I'm telling you this story, which is my, my Buddhist journey, um, which was, was um, thinking that there was such a thing as truth and trying to express my truth fully and then, ha- then watching myself get proven wrong and seeing it collapse and seeing it collapse at great cost, not just to myself. I w- I, you know, by the time the company failed, I was a broken man. Um, but also at great cost to my team who went on that journey with me, uh, great cost to our investors—nearly three million dollars was spent on the company—and um, certainly, certainly, brought some good into the world for, for near, you know nearly half a million users who used it, and, and uh, you know, there were lots of people who did achieve goals. But but still, it, it was it didn't feel for whatever reason like we'd accomplished something great. Um, I knew that it was it was an accomplishment, but somehow. And then that, and then uh, that. Felt like, probably failure. So I and felt it, like a failure, and then I also just I wasn't at all clear. Like I, I didn't I didn't have a worthy goal anymore. It's like well, well if that way of understanding the world didn't work. Like what is what is worth doing, and how does the world actually work? And and um, and so I went into a kind of crisis. Um, now it wasn't like it wasn't uh, like a. Um yeah it was, it was sort of an existential crisis. It wasn't like a dramatic one where I was like freaking out or anything i was I was quite balanced where well, you didn't have the money for food or you
1: didn't have a house or something like that it was like a it was a, it was yeah. a an internal crisis of essentially like what is my purpose what is my point where 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 do I go from here that just failed what what now
0: yeah yeah I had very little money but enough money to pay for food yeah um and um yeah so um so then so then i I had to confront nihilism, and this is actually the the thing I want to really focus on because um, I think that uh, you know uh, as a as a culture and as a civilization like on many levels we're we're at this point of crisis It's not just like Western civilization had a truth, um, and then- tw- the twentieth century was basically three crises which were all really one crisis um and and it was the truth about like where are we going to go what is the vision for the future of this civilization and strangely enough although um sort of the the liberal democratic ideal um uh of the united kingdom and the united states triumphed over fascism uh and communism, um, uh, and uh, and and you know, including like um, if you sort of include World War One in it, it triumphed over empire, it triumph over empire, and and uh, even though there's empires battling against each other, uh, ultimately is sort of like um, uh, a war between the arist- between the aristocracies of the world, um, and uh, so all- although it triumphed over all these things. In the 21st century, you have the problem is, like, once you've won all the battles, won all the wars, and, and you sort of, the, uh, you remember the 1990s, like, the United States was the only superpower left in the world, and there was this sense of, like, Fukuyama
1: it, uh, And Francis Fukuyama called it the end of history.
0: That's the true. end of history, Fukuyama, yeah, it's the end of history. Uh, well, yeah, the problem is, when you reach what you thought was the end of history, and it's not the end of history, what do you do? Um, and, and like, what do you actually believe in your values? And there, there's this, there's been this like, you know, neo-Marxist critique of capitalism and of uh, imperialism and of uh, uh, Christianity and of Western values. And so there's this turn to the East and you see this, in, you know, starting in the 60s and 70s with um, Joseph Campbell sort of returning to all mythologies, but also including to Western mythology and saying, hey, we need a story. and and that we haven't fully processed World War One. That we're still in what T. S. Eliot called the wasteland, where you know um, the the old world order has has been broken, like its its spinal cord has been snapped. Like we, we 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 need to get ourselves back together and figure out what we're all about and have a certain will to power. Um, and, um, and 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 we and the, prob- the problem that Campbell identified is that we don't have a religion that we can believe in. We don't have a mythology. We don't have a story where we're the hero and something else is the villain. We don't have an enemy, um, and uh, and then um, I think you know, uh, and, and then Alan Watts um, sort of was instrumental in bringing uh, Buddhism into the West in Western terms. Um, so uh, Watts, you know, was uh, both philosophically and and theologically educated, as he was. He became a went through seminary and became a, a um, a priest in uh, I think the Anglican Church um, before he became a Buddhist and lots was sensational, um, but um, and, and uh, I'd like
1: to I'd like to add something to what you said, which is yeah. essentially that it's not only that the West started looking towards the East as it as it was at that time. They started looking at the East at, from what they had talked about in the East thousands of years ago, but at a practical yeah. level at a practical level, it had been lost. Um, yes. Most, most yes. of the religions into dogmatic monasteries, as you experienced in Buddhism, yes. they kind of closed in on themselves. And so it was looking back at the history, at the history of Eastern thought. And it, it's the same way that we in the West also had a had a, a flowering of Western thought, and then it disappeared and descended yes. into the... Yes, yes,
0: it's, it's such a great point. I'm glad you made it. The East had lost its will to power long before the West. Part of the reason why the West dominated the East um, is because the West believed in its own ideas. Um, uh, The East uh, used to, I mean, the the term um, mandate of heaven was a term used, I think, um, in ancient China and, and I think adopted by the Mongols. The Mongols believed that they had a mandate of heaven, that the god of the blue sky was tengris, um, was, uh, you know, basically commanded them to rule the world. And, uh, and so they conquered the world. Um, and that, I think we underestimate, like we probably overestimate the mechanical value of an idea and then underestimate the, the simple belief that it works and the power of that. Um, uh, um, in other words, we, we overestimate the correctness of a religion because we think scientifically uh, and is this actually true? And then we underestimate the power of a religion um uh, In the fact that if many people believe that something is true they it has a tremendous effect on the world um, so, so anyways, the East had, had stopped appreciating itself and um, and that 's interesting like uh, in um, uh, you know Japan has its own story of the, you know uh, Japan encountering and absorbing Western ideas um, and losing uh, its well, sort of attempting to rediscover its japanese and, and how it emerged as a fascist state uh, in World War II uh, and as an imperialist state. Um, uh, and after World War II, um, the, the brokenness of Japanese culture uh, resulted in a giant sell-off of Japanese art and artifacts. And so I read an amazing book last year by Alex Kerr called Lost Japan, and I've, I've now been put in touch with Alex, and I, I'm looking forward to meeting him in Japan soon. Um, and the book was a triumph. Um, and, and Alex was the son of a Navy um, uh, officer um, who was part of the, the post-war reconstruction of Japan. So he grew up in Japan. He went back to school. He went to school at Yale, studied um, Japanese studies or Sinology, um, and then became a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, continued on to studies, and then went to Japan. He became an art dealer. And uh, all these Americans were appreciating Japanese art and culture and history and fascinated by it and wanted to learn as much as possible about it. And the Japanese could not be more happy to sell them all their stuff because they didn't value them at all. And, um, and I think that that's, that's sort of where Alan Watts comes into the picture in a way, um, you know, rediscovering Buddhism, which the Buddhists himself, themselves had lost. Um, <laughs> And uh, anyways, I want to fast forward to today because, because the, the crisis is, is, is a present crisis. So if you think about the world today, uh, and I think that the key thinker uh, to, to, to point to is Rene Girard, um, and Girard was actually Peter Thiel's mentor at Stanford, incidentally. Girard was an anthropologist and a philosopher, he was French, um, and he wrote excellent books, um, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Things Hidden Since the Foundations of the World. I mean, God, his titles. The man had a gift with (laughs) titling books. Um, And um, Girard was a Catholic. um, And Girard uh, pointed to a couple things about human nature, um, uh, which are fascinating. I won't go through all of them, but I will just assert this one, which is um, we need enemies. And if we can't find an enemy... We will invent one, and this is, this is his theory of the scapegoat, and we will kill the scapegoat. And the killing of the scapegoat will create a cathartic moment that will allow us to move on. And so you see in our world today all this scapegoating going on. Harvey Weinstein is the enemy. Let's kill Harvey Weinstein. Donald Trump is the enemy. Let's kill Donald Trump. Vladimir Putin is the enemy. Let's kill, kill Vladimir Putin. Kim Jong un is the enemy. Let's kill Kim Jong un. ISIS is the enemy. Let's kill ISIS. Um, and uh, and so I think that there's been this um, uh, sort of thinking that maybe Buddhism is this religion of peace where we can just realize that nobody is your enemy. We're all one. Well, and that's, that's, um, what gonna, that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say is that actually,
1: uh, when Alan Watts rediscovered Buddhism, he was rediscovering Buddhism, but through his own filters of Western uh, and learning. And and all of us have this conditioning, which we've been gifted by our birth, by our genetics, by our um, experiences and stuff like that. And that conditioning changes the way we per- perceive the world. So we can't isolate Buddhism and say, this is Buddhism, this is not Buddhism. It's all coming through these filters. And as a in the West, we've essentially not in this rediscovering of ancient
0: wisdom, we've also recreated it. And whatever. Yes. We we have not only recreated, we've created a monstrous caricature that is this, this most pathetic like vanilla oversimplification. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: Uh-huh. No,
0: no, that's I mean that's that's interesting. And so how did that actually um, so, so, so how does this relate to like today? So the world I'm I'm, I'm in New York now, I left San Francisco. Um, and uh, I walk around and you see this sort of consumerist culture. Uh, you've got like these, you know, fancy juice bars. We pay fifteen dollars for juice. <laughs> uh, you get you see these turmeric lattes for six dollars. Um, uh, you see this whole you know world that we've created for ourselves, this sort of like pampered and comfortable world. And you see the political correctness of uh, our speech and our conversational topics. And um, like tomorrow night, I'm going to a women's entrepreneurs event about empowering women. Um, like uh, I'm all for empowering women, but also. Like let's not kid ourselves. This is a very hyperconformist uh, subject, um, uh, and so 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 the point I'm going to make is that um, you know what is the crisis of our society is that beyond all this consumerism, there's this sense of uh, vacuity or like emptiness um, of like well well is any of this actually taking us somewhere? And of course, you know, you have this like movement towards yoga and Buddhism um, and meditation. Um, Uh, but um, as as some sort of salvation, but it doesn't actually solve the essential crisis of nihilism. So now I want to talk about the most important figure in the history of Buddhism, Friedrich Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. I think Nietzsche is the critical person to understanding the world today. Um, I think that like a good canon um, for religious leaders that matter is Jesus, Buddha, Nietzsche. And I think Nietzsche not being understood as a messianic figure, both intellectually and culturally, um, and and not really seeing how prophetic Nietzsche was, so Nietzsche was, is is one of our biggest blind spots. Um, like we need to put this figure into focus and zoom in. Um, so, um, you know, Nietzsche basically realized that the the. And he, he predicted the 20th century was going to be, uh, he predicted the Holocaust in, in, in not a specific way, but he predicted massive, massive death and trauma and darkness that was going to come out of um, this, uh, the fact that we basically came to stop believing, to stop, stop believe, uh, believing in Christianity as truth. We, we, we have this crisis of truth. And this is, again, going back to my story, I had my crisis of truth. Um, And we've come to this place where we don't know if there's anything that's true. We don't know if there's a meaning to life. We don't know that, like, we're just not sure anymore if if anything is valuable or anything is worth living for or what we're here to do or what our goal is. And again, my app is about goals, and I can tell you there's a crisis around what the right goal should be. And, uh, and so this crisis of values, this crisis of goals, this crisis of meaning and story, this crisis of mythology and religion, this crisis of truth, this crisis of meaning, um, results in suicide. And you see that with David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace grappled with the abyss of nihilism. Um, he basically lost his faith in any sort of system of meaning. He, he could not find a faith in any religion or any philosophy. And, and he realized that everything is completely meaningless and the world was becoming more and more meaningless. And he committed suicide. Um, and, um, and I think that uh, sort of as a, a warning, a clarion call, sort of a warning, you know, he was kind of a warning. He was an early warning for what's happening today, which is that we have been systematically eliminating hells in the world. Absolute poverty is, is, at, is at its lowest. And we've been moving into purgatories like San Diego, where I grew up, where everything is nice, or Sweden, uh, Sweden, which is Europe's version of purgatory. And most of my ninety-plus percent of my Obama millennial friends, they want to to live in Sweden. They think, or they, they basically feel like Sweden is the model for the future. That Sweden is utopia. That hev- Sweden is heaven. And Sweden is not heaven. Sweden is is a kind of crisis of, of of, ha, ha, has this crisis perhaps even more deeply because there are no problems? Once you've solved all the problems, you have the crisis that you have no problems and you have no meaning in no systems. So what are you going to do about it? Um, yeah. And and so it reminds me Peter Till's uh, question. Go uh, ahead.
1: It reminds me of of a, a teaching that I once heard, which is essentially like so: it's, humans have this understanding or. Uh, thinking that we can actually control our thoughts, we can control the things that happen, we can kind of everything like this. And then when you investigate it, you realize, okay, you don't have control over your thoughts. And so it's very clearly kind of stated in this hypothetical situation that if you could live in a world with only pleasure, how long would you live in that world before going insane? Um, because if you don't have that pain side of pleasure, you never actually truly yeah. really understand pleasure.
0: Yeah. It's- yeah, that's it. And that, this is this. And game designers know this. And by the way, games are very spiritual things. Alan Watts' whole thing was seeing reality as a game. Um, game designers know that a game is a bad game if it's so difficult that you're you become defeatist and you feel like you can't beat it. Um, and a game is a bad game if it's so easy that you don't feel challenged. So the right game game is at a 45 degree angle where the x axis is ease and the y axis is. Um, is, uh, x axis is ease and y axis is difficulty? No, that would be the same axis. But the, um, uh, maybe the y axis is like time? I don't know. I have to think about it. But, um, the, uh, the idea is that you need, you need a balanced game. And, uh, and so, um, our, our idea that utopia, heaven, um, is a place where only good exists and there is no injustice. And no suffering is a Christian idea, not a Buddhist one. Well, they they have it in a different form. They have it in
1: the in the in the dogma of reincarnation, which is essentially you do good merit right now, uh you'll be you'll be blessed with a with a with a um a higher birth next time.
0: Higher birth next time, but but still in the same reality and, and uh so yeah, you could be a wealthy person in the world today, but uh and, and by the way, reincarnation I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like it 's more heavily emph- emphasized in, in, um, in certain, by certain Buddhists than others, and this is where you know, Buddhism is really complex and sort of absorbs a lot of historical influence from Hindu mythology, which really provides the mythological ground for it but but anyways, um, the point being that um, we are getting to a point in our politics where we're tr- we 're we 've become hyperbolistic about the injustices in our society, and and I look around, and I just don't see them. And you could say, well, I'm sheltered, (laughs) and I'm not that sheltered. Um, And I also can, like, do some statistics. So, you know, every rape case, for example, is unacceptable, right? And so you say, you say, like, this is just a horrible thing. We cannot tolerate it the same way every murder is unacceptable. Okay, so what's it going to take to eliminate all rape in this country? And the answer is quite simple, a surveillance state. And this is where everyone cringes. They cannot imagine that that's such a horrible thing. They just think that, like, oh, we, if we do more events, more cultural education, if we, um, uh, if we spend more money in schools, like, re-educating uh, people, if we, um, if, we, uh, if we indoctrinate everyone, uh, or if we pass certain laws to regulate the workplace, or if we, you know, whatever, like that we're going to prevent the next Harvey Weinstein or the next um, – it 's not clear that Weinstein, by the way, actually committed rape but but the the um the point is that like if you want to actually solve the problem, there is a solution, and the solution is a problem The solution and, and this is actually a truth about solutions in general solutions are also problems and create problems, so progress is not necessarily an illusion but because because you might you know the solution might depends which problems you'd rather have a b um like uh, you know, a solution that solves you know uh, gives you five uh, percent net less problems. So you place replaced another problem with the old problem. This is, this is what
1: Krishna talks a lot about. He essentially says who? is that like Krishna Murti, J. Krishna Murti. Yeah. 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 He says essentially that all of these kind of we, we're here right now, we have we are experiencing fear, uh, we don't really look at that fear but the fear drives us in order to look for certainties in order to look for solutions in order but really the if you want to unravel the whole thing you have to come back and look at the fear itself and not say okay i'm fearful now now i need to run away from fear that would then be playing right into the fear but just look into the mechanism of fear itself question it ask why i'm experiencing yeah Um, so if everybody were to do that then then i think rape would would probably go away because I mean, I, I don't know. I can't get into, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But again, the, the whole idea, the whole
0: idea that anyone can do anything, it's like that everyone is somehow going to become moral is, is, um, and that we can, highly, highly suspect as, 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 as a scenario that, that might ever be possible. And, you know, again, ontologically, a priori may just be a flawed concept that everyone can somehow be moral. Um, but anyways, I want to finish my narrative so that I can just like, move on to the, to the actual conversation with you, which is um, uh, the, we have a society that just doesn't want to acknowledge that trade-offs exist, uh, and that, um, that like, you can eliminate all rape and all murder without doing uh, do, imposing drastic solutions like surveillance state, um, because that would have us think about whether we value privacy more than we value security, for example and um and although there are examples of uh, tradeoffs being elegantly transcended by elegant solutions or such a thing as an elegant solution um, the uh the this the, I, I just want to talk about like the the uh the yoga mom <laughs> um, because uh, I think the the, the 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 yoga mom is sort of an, a type of like the the average person in society um, who has a, her tattoo of like yin yang uh, on and and doesn't realize that like, uh, but also like you know vote, voted for Hillary Clinton and um, and wants uh, wants to put an end to injustice in America. Um, there is a direct contradiction in her life, and she can't see it, and her. And, and there's a paradox there, which is that she's, she's living in suburbia. She's like in this consumer society that was created by Western Christian ideas that are very much invested in this idea of progress um, and a uh, heaven being possible. Um, but they've created a sort of purgatory for her. Um, and she's, she's sort of comfortable in that purgatory. Um, she doesn't have an idea of a future that's radically different than the past, but just sort of ameliorated present, um, with less, less injustice. Um, and yet this symbol on her, on her left shoulder is uh, yin-yang, um, which is like saying, which is like saying in Christian terms that God is the devil, that God and the devil are one. And so, um, you know, you might even say just to be, to be flip about it, um, yoga moms are devil worshippers. <laughs> <laughs> that would trigger them, certainly trigger them. But it's a way of pointing to how dangerous the idea of Taoism is. The Buddhism confronts nihilism more honestly, I think, than than other religions. Or may, maybe it doesn't doesn't confront it more honestly. But but actually Nietzsche confronted it honestly, and I think Nietzsche really wrestled with Buddhism because um, if there is no meaning and there is no heaven and there is no god and everything's one and and the void. The void is the great truth, not God. The Taoists really spend more time talking about the void. There's even a verse in the data saying the Tao is older than God. Um, uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, basically, Nietzsche, Nietzsche basically came to the point of view that you need to... Um, that, that So, so if David Foster Wallace is the unreconstructed nihilist who just says everything is meaningless, therefore I'm going to commit suicide. I think Nietzsche was the... Re, um, the romantic nihilist who's able to emerge on the other side, he's able to complete the Buddhist journey and and have a victory over nihilism and say, yes, I'm not sure if God exists. I'm not sure if heaven exists. I'm not sure if there's a meaning. I'm not sure if there's a goal. But, um, and I, I see that, like, my society is also very confused and is, like, lacking clarity as to what our, our religion should be. I am going to create my values, uh, and, and I'm going to come to an answer, and I'm going to assert that my answer is, uh, answer is correct, and I'm going to continue to seek the truth. I, I, may, not, I may not ever, you know, I'm always going to be, uh, as an individual, I'm going to be going through my evolution as I, as I question my own truth. But here is my truth. Here is my God. Here is my religion. Here is what's valuable. Here's the future that I'm, I'm aspiring towards. I am, I am asserting all these things to be true, and um, that is the best that I can do. And I have a will to live and a will to power. Uh, and I'm hungry for life. Um, and so I'm coming down from the mountaintop. I'm going to stop like treating meditation like something I just sit and go into a zombie state. And the true meditation is being fully expressed and fully expressing myself. As an individual, and fully expressing my truth. My truth against all other truths. My values against all other values. The future that I envision against all of the futures.
1: And... Almost essentially like a it's like an I don't know, but this is what I believe.
0: Yes. Exactly. And uh I don't know if there's such a thing as truth, but I do know and I I don't trust anyone who has arrived at the final truth. Uh I don't trust dogmatists, um, but uh I do believe uh and I don't trust dogma, but I do believe in the importance of religion. I do believe in the importance of truth. I do believe in the importance of seeking truth and living your truth and expressing your truth. So yes, I'm going to come down from the mountain and be red or be blue or be green. And I recognize that in being red, I am, I am making the mistake of not being green and not being blue and not being orange, not being all these other things. I'm, I'm putting one truth in, in sort of opposition to all others because, they're, because they, they are kind of in this opposing thing. And to put this in terms of Greek mythology, I think the Greeks understood this. The Greeks had all the Olympians. All the Greek gods were on Olympus at their banquet hall. They're they're in peace, right? But in in the world, they're in. You know, the, the gods of Olympus come down and they fight these battles. So some of the gods are fighting on behalf of Troy, and some of the gods are fighting on behalf of the Achaeans. Um, you know, uh, one of the gods supports um, Odysseus, and one of the par- gods opposes Odysseus. Um, so you, what you have there is the idea that like. Somewhere on Olympus, all the values are united because each god represents a value. But in this present war, in world, the values are at war. They're in tension. They're in conflict. Um, you know, For example, security and privacy are in conflict. Um, equality and freedom are in conflict. Expression and correctness are in conflict. And so the individual, and again, you could put this in a Christian sense, it made in the image of God, individual becomes God and, and makes these godlike assertions this is my value not that and um, and so uh, so again in my life to finish my own story um, I, uh, I spent over a year thinking you know what is what is, it, what is an idea worth worth solving And um, I came to the conclusion that the biggest problem in the world is solutions ironically there's an app for everything there's a vendor for everything so why isn't everything perfect? And I realized that solutions have costs. You have to use them. You don't have, you only have 24 hours in a day. There's a million apps. How are you going to possibly use them? Existing technology is just going to get more and more and more powerful, but I'm not going to have time to, to actually take the maximum value out of existing technology. And, and as a user, I'm, just, I'm going to get more and more overwhelmed. So the idea of a single bot that can do everything with humans doing the work and technology coordinating the humans on digital assembly lines was really powerful. And I went through, again, a two-year journey with Invisible, where my first iteration was wrong and crashed, but I was more confident in the underlying thinking of the company than I was with Everest. So I was willing to go through that pivot. We went for over a year, it was kind of like a journey through hell, surviving and rebuilding the company. We relaunched, and now our current version is working. What do you plan so up about? on our website? Uh, it's inv.tech, and we, we automate repetitive digital work. So basically, you jump on a video call, you give us work you give to an intern or an assistant, we write down the instructions, Uh, We build processes to do the work for you. Uh, We have humans on Digital assembly and executing those processes. um, And we can do anything from scheduling to lead generation, managing your contacts, your CRM, your your sales or hiring funnel, categorizing customer support tickets, sending emails um, in certain situations based on templates um, on your behalf, uh, doing your expense reports, accounting functions. The average knowledge worker, you know, uh, has ten to twenty hours a week of work that they wish they could give to an intern, like process work, and we're we're just taking that over. So, like, why? How does this company like reflect this spiritual journey that I've been on, and why is it like a motivating goal for me? Um, and um, the first thing is the decision to be an entrepreneur again uh, is something that I embrace because my first company uh, failed, and that was like a debt. And then after you've died once, you can be f- much more fearless. Because you're like, okay, that's it? All right, kill me again. Like, well, I want to live again. Let's do it again. Again, it's a reincarnation. And so you just, you, you're on the path of reincarnation. Fine. That idea was wrong. How about this idea? Oh, that idea was wrong? Okay, fine. Let's try this. And, and then the first six months of Invisible, I told everyone I'm driving the company 200 miles per hour at a wall and forcing the wall to move. And then the company crashed. And then I emerged. And now here I am. You know, so the company survived, um, and um, we we rebuilt from that. So that's the first thing: is just choosing to enter, enter into time, uh, and and choose to solve a valuable problem and participate in the timeline, even though you realize oh, I'm just one out of seven billion people, and uh, you know history is probably deterministic, uh, and. Uh, what have you, like you, 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 you assert your individual agency, and that's very Nietzschean. Um, and then the other thing is um, uh, the, um, the, sa- the, the saving of time is, uh, I think, more of a social cause, social impact cause than uh, almost anything else. So you, you know, you might compare Invisible to some nonprofit that's helping people. Uh, one second. Um, yep. we're someone a device in here. Yeah. Happy to move, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm, right. to come on in. I'm Great. so sorry to your call. No worries. I really Fine. appreciate your flexibility. Yeah, you bet. Um, all right, sure, give me a second. Thank um, mm-hmm. you All um, right, back in privacy. Um, uh, the, the, the nonprofit that's helping bring clean drinking water to Africa, um, you know, might, might be making more, you might say, oh, that's a better, it's a more moral, more noble cause than helping save, you know, uh, trillions of human hours uh, for doing repetitive digital work for the most productive people in the world. But if you can save Elon Musk time, um, you're, what you're doing is, is you're giving the people who have an idea about what the future should look like, you're giving them power. And, um, and so instead of living in sort of boring Swedens or San Diegos, you're advancing like uh, a future, like you're empowering the people who have exciting ideas about, about things that, like we could be doing with our time. Um, uh, you're empowering them, and uh, and and so I, I personally think we're not we're not consumerist enough. We need sort of hyper consumerism. Where like most companies are just like um, you know more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. But there's some there's some companies that introduce new things that which is never before possible, and and those are situations where supply leads demand instead of demand leading supply, and supply produce the producers values are being imposed on the consumer, and that is, is progress. So if you can give those people power, that's good. If you, that's why creating efficiency in the world is good. Also, even just for ordinary companies, um, making everything better, faster, cheaper, better, faster, cheaper, better, faster, cheaper, better, faster, cheaper, which is what efficiency does, is a kind of deflationary gospel for um, global wealth. Um, like if you could buy your groceries for the month for um, 50 cents, uh, and it, the quality was better than Whole Foods, and you can get it delivered to you instantly, um, that is a welfare state, but it's a capitalist welfare state. Um, and so efficiency is a good thing, and that's one of the things our, our company is doing. So that was a goal that I could motivate myself with. Another goal that I could motivate myself with was like, Invisible is becoming a capitalist workers revolution. We have 50 people in like 16 countries all around the world, and 70% of the world makes less than $10 a day. So we start, people, work, people start working for us for a buck $1.50 an hour. And they're on a path where they can earn up to twenty-two dollars and fifty cents an hour, which is like an unimaginable sum in a place like Kenya. Um, uh, and um, and so um, so to me, it's very exciting to like help these people enter the digital class and rediscover like and, and sort of have access not not just to like tools, but to um, uh, to like ways of thinking and schools of thought. And we even have like a book club where they read books. Um, so uh, so just to, to zoom out for a second, like how does this relate to, you know, me taking my, my uh, insight from the top of the mountain and coming down? Um, like am I sure that like this company is right and this idea is right and my understanding of the world is correct? No. But um, I am... I'm expressing myself. If, if I get hit by a bus and I'm bleeding, what I want to know is, did I express myself as much as absolutely possible? Um, and uh, was I learning as fast as possible? And was I building towards the best possible, desirable future um, that, uh, that I could? Um, and the answer to those questions is yes. And I think that's a really good way to live, is that sort of aggressive living.
1: That is. This has been an amazing conversation, uh, and I really thank you, Francis. And uh, everybody yeah. check Invisible. Uh, how do
0: How do you, how, yeah. how can they find you? Yeah, the website is www.inv.tech. That's www.inv.tech. The company is Invisible Technologies. We automate repet- repetitive digital work. It costs ten dollars an hour. Um, And then my personal website, um, if you go to FrancisPedraza.com, it should take you to my Medium page where I do all my writing. And as like a final thing I would give everyone, um, in the beginning of uh, the Christian scriptures, you have this very Taoist passage in the beginning of Genesis, um, which can be interpreted in a very different way than most Christians do, um, of God creating the world. And he says, let there be light. And boom, the big bang happens. There's this unimaginable giant explosion, and all of cosmos comes into existence. And I think that that is a, if you want to be God-like, if you want to be like God, or in, in the Taoist sense, if you want to, if you want to channel the Tao, um, always be exploding. That's my message to the world, always be exploding. Express all possibilities, express yourself. Um, and I think that aggressive way of living, um, we think about, like, the wise man is the person who is really soft and quiet and balanced, and um, and sort of uh, barely speaks with a whisper, um, and he's so at so peaceful. Um, but what if the wise man is the artist or the entrepreneur who's building something and doing something with their life and living as much as they can before they're dead? That is godlike. You're always exploding. Let there be light. Thank you so much, Francis. That was amazing. Cheers, buddy. Bye. Yep. yep.